Dispatches, a production of Blurb Inc., is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. This is Dan with Blurb. I am in Miami, Florida today with uh, photojournalist Maggie Stieber, who has a uh, illustrious career, to say the least, 60-plus countries that you've traveled to. You've been published in virtually every publication that as a photojournalist or documentary photographer you would want to be published in, New York Times Magazine, London Times, The New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera. How are you today? I'm so fine. Thank you. And just for the viewers, so our history goes dates back to, I think, 1990, although you didn't probably know it. But uh, I was going to photojournalism school at the University of Texas, and I was a transfer student. And they told me when I got to the office that there was a visiting professor coming in to teach of this woman named Maggie Stieber. And I looked at your work and thought, oh, this is absolutely perfect for me. But then there was a little, a little hiccup of some sort, and they decided that due to my being a transfer student that I would not be allowed to take your class. However, my roommate was able to take it, so I sort of lived vicariously through him. So we go back a long way, and uh, I'm going to talk a lot about in, the, in, in a few minutes here about your book on Haiti, which was really impactful to me. But where, where does Maggie come from? Where, where does your history start in life and then in photography? I was born and raised in Texas. All right. Texas gal. All right. What, what city? I was born in Electra, Texas. Wow. I don't even know where that it's is. It's a tiny little town at the base of the Panhandle. But happily, my mother didn't stay there. And uh, then I grew up in Austin. And uh, I'm an only child with a single parent who's passed away now. But uh, I went to the University of Texas. All right. And I, yeah. <laughs> and I studied uh, journalism and I was a French major until I hit uh, a particularly difficult course on medieval literature. Oof. So I changed over to journalism and photography, and I was really lucky because I was able to study both in the photojournalism department mm-hmm. and also in the art department at UT, where Russell Lee, who was one oh, of yeah. the Farm Security Administration photographers, taught. Mr. Lee was wonderful. He really never criticized anybody or hurt their feelings. You always found the thing that worked in your pictures and encouraged it. And on Fridays, some of us would go to his house and he would give us liquor. Oh, and then we would awesome. go have Mexican food. <laughs> it was really wonderful. And then he was quite old, so he retired. And Gary Winogrand came to teach there. Yeah, and wow. I was so lucky to get to study with him because... That's unbelievable. Oh, he was amazing and gruff. Oh, he was so gruff. And he had this whole following where students um, would follow him around campus and whatever he would photograph, they would photograph. I I wasn't one of them because I worked my way through school, so I didn't have the luxury of following like uh, in a little gaggle of geese. But he taught me more than anybody else how to look at a picture. And I think it had a very seminal effect on my career because at several points in my career, I've been a picture editor, which I adore. I love being a picture editor. I love looking at other people's pictures. And that's not something that all photographers No, that's that's actually relatively rare. Somebody that Uh, is, one, a photographer that's really good at editing, and two, being willing to work with all these other... Oh, I adore it. I'm amazed at what people do. 
So let's go back to the day that you first had a camera in your hand. Do you remember when that was? Like, let's say a camera in your hand with purpose. That would have been when I was going to school at the University of Texas. And why did you? Why did photography seem appealing to you? It's really a really, oh, it's such a boring story. I had a roommate who was uh, studying journalism uh, education, and she had to take a photo course. And mm-hmm. so she would ask me to help her with the exercises, like how to show motion. So I would jump in a pool, or I would run across a field, or I would stand on my head. Or So it was a modeling portraits. career that it got you It was a modeling career, yeah. yes, that got me into it. And she would go to the darkroom and come home with these prints, and I thought that it was really magical. And uh, And so I signed up for a course, and that was it. Do you remember the first body of work or the first photograph that you made that you said, I think I think this is good? I worked my way through school, and so basically all I had time to do were the assignments, but I had saved money, and so when I graduated, I bought myself three months in Paris, and nice. I thought, I'm going to go be the Cartier-Bresson, mm-hmm. <laughs> the female <laughs> Cartier-Bresson, and so every day I would go out street shooting, and I actually made some very nice pictures, but... They were so young, you know, and I, I mean, I went back with this little portfolio of street photography in Paris and, of course, realized pretty quickly that I I had to do much more than that. But I think those were the best pictures I had taken up till that that point. point. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do post-graduation? I actually got a job on the Galveston Daily News, my first job out of school, and I was a reporter photographer. And I loved it. I loved working for the paper because, of course, on a small paper, and especially at that time, you got to do anything. I could do feature pages and lay mm-hmm. them out. I could uh, I could write about anything. Uh, I also had to do police reports and obits and cover the school board meetings. And But I could photograph high school basketball games and run up and down the court. <laughs> it was, and I it's could, an adventure. Yeah, it was a, quite an adventure. And then, uh, But I'm not a small town gal. And, and then I moved to New York to seek my fortune, and that's when I became a picture editor at Associated Press. Oh, okay. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I thought I would always be a picture editor. And so my first question is, you thought you were going to be a picture editor. And then when is the moment that you thought, well, maybe I should really pick up the camera again? I was following, I'm not a big sports buff, but Mm -hmm. I love uh, running. I love track and field. I don't run, but I love Love people who run. Yeah. And there was this particular African runner, Philbert Bailly, who was front page news all over the world. He won every race he ran. He was this beautiful little figure who was extraordinary. And so I suggested to AP that uh, we send somebody from Nairobi. He was from Tanzania. Why don't we send someone from the Nairobi Bureau to go photograph him in his home country where he's a hero because nobody's done this? And they sort of patted me on the back and said, yes, Maggie, that's a good idea. And I thought, it is a good idea. I'm going to go do it. So I took my vacation. I went over. I spent 10 days photographing this extraordinary person. He was beloved by everybody. Uh, I got really great access. I took some very nice pictures because he was so beautiful in the country and the Tanzanians, everybody was so, it was so beautiful. And I wrote a story and I sold that story to 10 different major American newspapers and a track and field 
magazine, including the New York Times Sunday Sports section, which did a full page. And that's when I... That's pretty encouraging. I was so happy. And I thought, well, hmm, let me try this again. And the next summer, uh, I went to back to Africa because I had fallen in love with Africa. And I did a little travel story about a railway that the Chinese built. And I managed to sell the hell out of that as a little travel story. And that's when I started to think that perhaps that really was the direction I should go yeah. in because I was joyful about it. It was so joyful to me. How important is that to have that kind of feeling when you're... And the reason I ask is because there's a lot of photographers working today and probably historically where you're working and you're getting paid and you're sort of churning in the career of being a photographer, but you may not be that thrilled with what it is you're actually mm -hmm. photographing. Well, I would say that for the most part, when I started out, I did everything on speculation. And then... I would try to sell it, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was good for me because it allowed me to make mistakes without being punished. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a great we'll point. never hire you again. Um, and also, uh, I I then moved to Africa for two years to cover a war in what is now Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. and so giving myself these opportunities, giving myself those opportunities, I learned I could make mistakes, but I also learned, you know how to be a better photographer and understand as well. For example, when I was covering the war, this was a guerrilla war, it was a race war. You couldn't get to the front lines. If you did, you'd probably be killed. And anyway, you can't really photograph bullets being fired. So what I concentrated on was uh, photographing this changing society. And I got a lot of work for the New York Times. And I would send them little picture packages <laughs> from Africa. This was back in the days yeah. of film, remember? Yeah, back in the day. And they would use two or three pictures a week and then pay me. So I, I really started on spec. And for a good first part of my career, I did a lot on speculation. And I tell you... That really worked for me because people um, respond to that. Because you're not coming with your hand out. You're coming with something with in something. hand. Mm -hmm. And it gives them a chance to say yes or no. But I think also it's better for you as a photographer because you're, you're learning, you're pushing yourself, and you're not saying, well, this is the formula. That, because, you know, there is a formula, but it's not always the way to go. So did your experience with Haiti begin in Africa? You know, it began in a roundabout way because I lived in Africa for two years and then I moved back to New York and I was, I was really struggling uh, because I had all these pictures from a war that nobody, certainly in the United States, cared about. So I had to start over and I realized that I wanted to tell stories. Um, and so... Uh, I was working for SIPA Press, which mm -hmm. was a very sure. big picture French. agency. Yeah. yeah, And Mr. SIPA said, oh, Maggie, you should go to Haiti. It is just like, f just like uh, Africa, and we need a story on the dictatorship and uh, of the Duvalier family, and it's a poor country, and blah, blah, blah. So I went. And while I was there, I discovered that actually Haiti was very African for many reasons his that are historical. And... Uh, and I, I fell in love with it. Do you know Luke Langton? Yes, I do. He was a I, when I was visiting uh, at uh, UT. Yeah. As a visiting lecturer, he was in my graduate class. 
Yeah, Loop was a bright spot at the in the program when I went there as well. I, he was like a, I don't know what he was teaching, but I didn't, never had him for a class, but I got to spend a lot of time with him. And he had spent some time in Haiti, and I remember, I want to ask you the same question that I asked him, was the plane ride into Haiti for the first time. You've never been there. It's a dictatorship. It's in turmoil. You, you know, you speak French, so you've got at least a, a leg up there. What was it like to fly in? On, what was the feeling in the plane for you of sitting there saying, okay, did you realize what it was going to become as part of your life, or did you think it would be a quick hit story? Well, I just thought I was going to do a little bit of work, uh, you know, on poverty and maybe the regime, and and that was it. But uh, when <laughs> I got there and I saw how African it was and how close it was and how there was something in the air that was kind of magical, and that sounds kind of crazy to say it, but I think, you know how people have chemistry and mm -hmm. you either ha are repelled by somebody or you're really drawn to them, but I think that's true with certain countries. But of course, flying in the first time on a plane and it looks kind of beautiful and tropical and, you know, but you have no idea what it's going to be like. And it's not until after you've got your feet on the ground and have been there a few days that you start to say, I hate this place, I'm never coming back, or, oh my, this is... Something. And, and how quickly did you realize that this is something? This is something. It, it took me a week or two. I, I mean, I only spent two weeks there. And then I, the first time. And then I went back for another week. And then I was really working a lot in Cuba uh, on my own dime and my own time. Again, mm -hmm. to learn how to be a better photographer and to work on a long-term project and how that's put together and, you know, what it entails and that sort of thing. So I didn't go back really until 1986, and that's when the whole place blew up. <coughs> Absolutely. And, yeah, and by that time I was smitten. I was a smitten kitten, <laughs> and I've never looked back, and I've worked there now for 30 or 35 years, and I still wow. don't feel like I've finished. The book that came from that, from the first, how many years was, the book is Dancing on Fire. How many years of work was that? That book represents five years, from 1986 to 1991. And that was the, was that the first publication that you had done? Yes. And the publisher is Aperture? Yes. What was, so coming from the photojournalism background, studying, I remember what I was taught about books at UT, what a book was supposed to be, what it was supposed to look like, et cetera. What was, in your mind, why do a book? What was the importance of doing that? Well, one thing, I, uh, I never set out to do a book. The work has to merit it. I, I would never be somebody who Hallelujah. said, I'm going to do a book. I'm going to start working here and I'm going to do, do a book because I don't believe in that. But after working five or six years, quite a bit, and I started to look at the work, and, and the work was getting a lot of attention too. But again, there was, because I was able to, you know, I was working there quite often on my own time and money, so one is freer. Uh, but I started to look at the work and thought, you know, perhaps this work merits being put in a different situation or being put in a different form because there's a story to tell here. And I wasn't so... Um, concerned about the photographs, but I was very concerned that this was a story that I felt needed to be told and that 
basically what I wanted to do was to give Haitians a voice and that that would be the book, that it would be a, their voice. It was their book to write. And that's really strongly how I felt about it. Uh, and then so it, this was not something that you looked at and said, uh, you know, this is going to really boost my career mm-hmm. by having a book. That was a secondary sort of afterthought. Right. And the first book was to have this document for the Haitian people. Yes, because they really... I mean, not that, I mean, here I come. I'm not going to be, oh, I'm going to make a book on Haiti and give people a voice and I'm going to be their savior. It wasn't like that. I just thought they really merited. They're such amazing people. And they taught me so much. You know, I, I've learned so many lessons in Haiti, life lessons and uh, big and small lessons. And uh but at any rate, I just I, I just felt that the work up till that point needed to be put in some form that it made some sense and maybe would show people a whole different aspect of Haiti. Uh, and Aperture, did you go to Aperture? Did they come to you? Well, I went to about five or six different publishers because at the time, Kodak was giving grants to All bodies right, of work that they liked. And so I went to see them with my Haiti work. I went to see Kodak. And they said, we really like it. We're going to help support the publication, the production cost. But they wouldn't tell me how much they would give. They said, we'll work directly with the publisher. So then I had to find a publisher. So I went to four or five publishers. The people I saw loved it. But when they got to the meeting with all the other Mm -hmm. editors, the first thing that was out of anybody's mouth was, but it's a book about black people and black people don't buy books. And I was aghast. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was aghast at the racism. So finally, uh, I had done a little maquette, you know. A a little mock-up, sure. mock-up. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, okay, I had avoided Aperture. Don't get mad at me, Aperture. But I really felt that Aperture was very elitist, and I'm I'm kind of an anti-elitist. You're a Texas girl. I'm a Texas girl, honey. Come on, small town. That's right. Anyway. But I thought, well, what the hell? And I took it on a Thursday and Friday morning. Michael, um, oh my, Michael Hoffman, mm-hmm. who was the editor then, called me and he said, "We love your book and we want to publish it." Wow! And I, the, he gave me a great editor to work with and a great designer, and I was very involved with it. And I had it was it was a love affair. It was the sweetest experience I could have had. Aperture was really so wonderful to me and um and the book still sells you can still find it on amazon low these many years later (laughs) and uh it's good it is a it is an incredible book i have a lot of books it's one of the books that i have that i go back to over and over and over it to me is like the the essence of of the reportage project in an era when people spent the time required to really do the project like i felt that Haiti was really had become your life and had, you know, your life was, was fundamentally forever changed by working on that story. And I would equate it to Salgado on the workers project or something Mm -hmm. along those lines where it was the, the sort of unwritten rule that you worked for X amount of time before you even began to think that you were going to publish this. Yes. Which is a very, very different space than we're in today (laughs) (laughs) everybody's so eager yes it's like gosh you go on a date with one person and then you want to marry him except and it's sort of like that with books gosh i took a few pictures i think i'll make a book but 
and people love the idea of making a book, right? But yeah. it's there are so many of them. Um, but the one thing I'll say about this, a book is like a child. It's forever. And um, I think people to put too many pictures in books, far too many pictures. Yeah. And they don't uh, understand that this is the one thing that will live on after you're gone. And so I even sort of had a real case of the blues after it was sure. published because I kept thinking, well, does this mean I don't work in Haiti anymore? Which, of course, I got over right away and I continued <laughs> to work in Haiti. Um, but I just thought, you know, this this may be the only book, something I never thought I would do, mm-hmm. only book I'll ever publish, and it's got to be something I'll be happy about for the rest of my life. And so, I mean, I'm not a person who just feels like I have to do so many books. There are some great photographers who have done a lot of books, and mm-hmm. they, they're just so prolific. Yeah. And the work is extraordinary. But everybody's different. Everybody's different. Look at J.D. Salinger. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, the, I think it's like the most read, one of the most read books that's in history of publishing. But that was really his his sort of focal point. Yes, he wrote other things that were really good, but nothing that never that ever achieved that same thing. But but you know that and is that a, that's enough though? I mean, one one thing. I mean, that book is going to live forever yes. as like a testament to the time. Yes, I think sometimes it takes great self control and courage to understand that maybe it's you just have one thing. Maybe that's all you have in you, but. In that case, it it must be as magnificent or important or right on. I mean, the most important audience for me with Dancing on Fire are mm-hmm. the Haitians. If the Haitians like it, then I'm, I can die a happy woman. So my next question I'm going to get to in a very roundabout way, which is about when you were working in Haiti, this was the sort of like a Kodachrome era of working, right? So you would shoot, were you shooting Kodachrome? I would shoot Kodachrome. And then you would travel. And I use Lycus. And you use Lycus. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and you would travel, ba- you would take all the film from Haiti and you would travel back to New York and you would get it processed. And there would be a couple of days of waiting around and then you would get those transparencies back and you'd start to go through them and editing. And this, compared to today, this was a, a pathologically slow process of working. But it was also it was also a really good way of working. So when you fast forward to today and imagine doing a story like Haiti with today's technology and the ability to share every single step of the way immediately, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it just a different thing? You mean editing Well, today, not, not only editing, but say that you went to Haiti today and you were shooting with your mobile phone and doing Instagram and you had a digital camera, which means you can share everything immediately. So there's oh, no right. travel mm-hmm. back to New York. There's mm-hmm. no marinating. I get it's it. It's just displayed. Yeah. Is that... A good thing, or is just a is is that how you work today, or do you still sort of have a foot in both worlds? I try very hard, even when I'm shooting digital, not to look at the pictures. It's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. Unless I'm I'm a little bit worried about exposures because I'm shooting in a very low light level and dark skinned people or something like that. But um, I just try to shoot as though I were shooting film, and. Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know. I can't say, I can't say that I think it's a bad thing. The only thing that I would say is problematic about digital is that people tend to overshoot. 
And that by looking, by chimping, mm-hmm. by looking at the picture, sometimes they settle mm-hmm. for something. Oh, I've got it. And they don't push themselves. Because what you always want to do when you're shooting is you want to get the meat and potatoes shot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once you've got that, go wild. Stand on your head. Lay down on the ground. I can't tell you how many times I can't get students to lay down on the ground or climb a tree because it's complete. Everything looks different, and sure. yet they won't do it. And they're young babies, and they still want And here I am. I'm not going to say how old I am, but I lay down on the f- ground, and I climb the trees. But it's, you know, it's about exploring. It's, a, it's visual exploration. And if you're satisfied with something it might be because you've seen that before and that's what you think is the norm and that's very dangerous because then mm-hmm. your pictures look just like everybody else's. Exactly. And you have to take chances, but that's the beauty of photography. You can take, and with digital, you can take a gazillion chances. You should be shooting all kinds of ideas around the one thing and really working it and exploring it, but I think sometimes people don't. They settle well, I think too because if you spend the online photography photography world can be ironically very limiting because we were talking earlier about uh, the comments, and so you realize you begin to think, well, if I post this, then I know it's going to get positive comments. But if I take a chance and post this other thing, then there might be some troll out there who like slays me because I took a chance. So I think I think you're right. the mm-hmm. The experimentation and the mistakes and the accidents of shooting is really the the fun part. And to me, when That's I edit... That's the fun part. It's the fun part. <laughs> when you edit someone's portfolio and there's nine images that really are on track and there's one sort of strange, mysterious thing, I love that image because a lot of times it indicates where that person's going to be in five years. That's, that's true. So, go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, I just wanted to say one thing is that um, I've had experiences where people kicked me in the teeth, let's say, editors. And... And uh, when they did, actually, it was exactly the thing I needed. And uh, because what I did was I would go home with this little junior portfolio I would be showing, (laughs) and they would tell me, oh, you're such a dilettante, or oh, this is nothing, anybody could do this, and blah, blah, blah. And I would go home and I would just cry because I was young and I I was heartbroken. But then I would really take a good look at my work and I would say, damn, they are so right. They're right. So if I'm going to do this, I better get, I yeah. better get busy. Work it. And really work it. And it's not easy. It is not easy to do this, and I have to work much harder, and I have to get better. And so in a roundabout way, sometimes those people can do you a favor. And then you just have to remember that, yes, there are a lot of mean, stupid people in the world too. But sometimes you can take something positive away from those experiences and I think that's really important to remember. I think in a way what you're speaking about is failure and the benefits of failure and what I've noticed is that failure is not looked upon in the same way today especially in the photo world whereas I always tell people the vast majority of pictures I've made don't work they're not even close they're bad maybe you get one percent that actually works and I'm not really sure why this is but failure is not looked at in the same way. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because it can really shine that mirror back and say, oh, like you could, you could have gone two ways. You could have said, that guy's an asshole. Mm-hmm. But you said, let me just relook at this and see and said, okay, this, um, these aren't as good as they need to be. I right. think that that's a really refreshing take on that. Yeah, one has to be honest with oneself, really. Now, the next question, my next little thing here is a, is a Pandora's box because I'm looking around your house 
and knowing what I know about you. And the question is about creativity. And you are really an artist that uses a, uses a camera. When, where does your creativity come from? And when did you realize that you were more creative than the average average person, or really wanted to dive into your creativity? <laughs> I always laugh when somebody says I'm an artist. <laughs> Look, I'm looking around here. There's plenty. There's plenty of indicators. I mean, there's a canvas with paint on it right there. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I, part of it is because I grew up by myself and uh, with a very eccentric mother. And um, so I had a very lively imagination. I, I'm sure in this day and age, if I were a child, the doctor would probably put me on medication medication yeah. and AD, up, up the dosage ahdh or whatever it's called right but happily uh i didn't grow up at that time and also my mother being a scientist would never have done that to me anyway and she encouraged me to be very imaginative and we would listen to all kinds of music and we would dance around the house and I was in plays and i would read a lot and i i'm sure i had a little pretend playmate I don't remember, but I bet I did. That spoke French, probably. <laughs> that spoke French. Um, and so I grew up, you know, happily uh, with a very lively imagination. And also I loved horror films when I was a little girl, even though they terrified me. And I would watch a lot of those, and I just had a very vivid imagination. And so I think that really played a part. Um, and I think... Everybody has an imagination, but sometimes it gets a bit beaten out of you, sure. or you have to form, um, what is it, conform. And so I, um, I encourage everybody to think about having an imagination and letting your imagination go. And so if you don't know what that means, well, it comes from reading, reading literature, listening to music, looking at art. Um, I go out every morning into my pretty little courtyard, and I just look up at the sky, and I th- listen to the birds and I look at how the light hits the trees and I just think hey this ain't bad <laughs> this ain't bad <laughs> and and I always kind of look to nature and see how imaginative she has been uh with all of the things that she's created and make happen and I think well then you know anything goes and I I think uh, taking risks uh, is really important but just not letting people kind of beat it out of you and yeah i think you have even in the nicest way that they tend to do sometimes when i used to photograph kids a lot i shot kids commercially for a few years and i would always end up talking to the parents and a lot of the parents were incredibly artistic and talented but had ended up in like financial roles or or you know whatever insurance roles and it was because they would you know kind of open up to me after a while and say well when I was when I was a kid I used to draw all the time I loved it but then they told me in school I was wasting time and you know I had to go into math or whatever so your inspiration is coming from literature and music and art and nature and things like that yes and I would say this uh, just as a piece of advice to everybody that if you're going to go and work in a country you should always do research, but not just, you know, reports that you've read mm-hmm. or something like that. If you really want to know about a people and a culture and a country, read their literature, their fiction, sure. 
their poetry, look at their paintings, look at their art, um, read the history, but several histories, because history has everything to do with why something is the way it is today. It's certainly true in Haiti, for example. It's, it's history determined everything in a very dramatic way, very dramatic way, and that's why it's such a dramatic country. Uh, which is also something that kind of uh, is alluring to me. I have to say I'm a bit of a dramatic person. Drama. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't throw fits or anything like that. I'm uh, not like that, but... Um, You're inspired by that kind of event or, or emotion. Yes, yes. And, and I've always had a very deep interest anyway in the black experience in history and also in the Native American experience in history, because they're sort of tied together because a lot of Native people were killed when Europeans came either to the New World or in Africa, <clears throat> well, in the New World, where you had indigenous peoples. Uh, and because so many of them died for various reasons, uh, that's when enslaved Africans were brought. And so uh, those histories are tied, but also... Um, there are just, you don't learn a lot about not only those people and their experiences, but European uh, and Anglo history, which sure. isn't a very pretty thing quite often. And I think, anyway, so you have to know about those things because that's what determines how people are today. Yeah, I run into a lot of people who, who are going to leave to do projects and they say, well, I didn't do any research because I don't want to cloud my... Oh, it's such bullshit. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, think, I think it's, it's lazy. Bullshit. I think they it's go lazy. in and I think you're absolutely right. I've been, uh, I love Latin America and I try to go to Latin America at least once a year. And so this year, one of my New Year's resolutions, which I don't call New Year's resolutions, uh, was to just read Latin American authors. So I've worked through 14, 15 books, Francisco Goldman, Daniel Alarcon, and they're, these are younger contemporary people. And it's to try to get a better understanding of all these different cultures. I think it's hugely important. And it's also really fun. I mean, I think that there's a, one of the best aspects of documentary photography is you get to keep learning as an adult. Oh, I agree. And yes, knowledge is, is fascinating and it's even sexy. Sure. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, I think it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez said that the real way to learn the reality of a people and a country and a culture is written in the fiction of the country because people dare not write the truth. But in fiction, mm. they can write the truth. Um, and also, uh, just one other thing I do is I do a lot of research. I do a lot of research... But then I go in like a baby, and I let those people in that country teach me. I don't go in like, oh, well, I've read this, and I've read that, and I blah, 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 blah. You know, I just go in like a blank piece of paper, and I let them write their story on this blank piece of paper, or this blank film, or this blank digital file. Card, or, yeah. You know, uh, because they will teach you everything, and you're... You'll be smarter. Your pictures will be better. They'll give you guidance about what to look for. Because you do go to a place and you think, oh, okay, I'm here. Now what now do I what? do? Sit down and talk to people before you even take the pictures. You'll get better pictures and you'll, you know, also uh, when we're all old and on our deathbed, the thing that we will remember is not so much the photograph, but the experience. experience. What's the one thing that you don't have that you really wish you had to, to help you with your work 
It could be anything. It could be a physical object. It could be time. It could be whatever. Well, time's pretty wonderful. But to be very frank, at this point in my life, if if I could win the lottery, mm, a lottery I ticket. would become a philanthropist and I would support uh, photographers in their work. And I would try to help them uh, with projects that I thought merited and actually accomplished something, not mm-hmm. just a collection of pictures. But I mean, that would be such great fun. I think that would I be agree. just the most fun because I, I've i had such a, I really have had a career I never expected to have. You know, I've had a life I never expected. I was going to be a high school French teacher in Texas where, honey, I can tell you, they don't want to be learning that French down no, there. That's like, uh, that's like <laughs> subversive. <laughs> but uh, but I've had such a splendid time, and I mean, I'm hoping to continue to have a splendid time, which is always up to us to make that happen. That never stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, oh, I think it would be joyful to be able to help, you know, to discover sure. people and to help them get their work published. And especially, I have to say, I would go after minority People. We do not have enough uh, black. Yeah, yeah. We especially not enough black women photographers at all, and Hispanics and Asians. But um, I'm I'm particularly interested in in the diversity issue. And I I have actually gone when I was a director of photography at the Miami Herald. I've gone to the black. Uh, Journalism Association conferences every year looking for young black mm. photographers, and I can't find them. That's interesting. I cannot find them. And so I've even, when I've found them, I mentor them, and I try to encourage them. And I, it's not that I don't, I mean, I mentor a lot of young people all over the world, people I don't even know, and of all colors and hues and sure. backgrounds, and, you know, I'm mentoring um uh, even some young people in Iran that I just love. But um, there's uh, a real lack of... Yeah, there's a need, for sure. There's such a big need. They have a different voice, and and they can see things in a different way, and we need their voices so much. So when I come back in five years to do a follow-up interview, if I'm still alive and my site is still alive, where are you going to be and what are you going to be doing? Well, I'll still be photographing, and I'll still be, I write a lot as well. I'll still be mentoring. I love mentoring. You still going to Haiti? I probably uh, always go to Haiti, and in fact, maybe I will eventually live there full time. Wow, that's exciting. Well, I, I, uh, you know, my mother had memory loss and dementia for seven or eight years, and I went through it all with her, and I was a real warrior. I can say that so proudly. I was a real warrior for my mama. And old people really need that. And how many, uh, how often they just get dumped. And the thing is that I I don't have children or a family. So uh, unless I have some young friends who are going to sort of take, you know, help keep an eye on me, um, I don't want to grow to be old and uh, not in control in this country. Mm. Um, 
although I found an exceptional place for my mama. And it wasn't the big expensive place, it was the place with the best caregivers, these Cuban and Romanian women who would hug and kiss on the people and just love on them, and I could be there all the time. Those photographs of that were pretty incredible. Well, I, I would have to say that's where photography saved me. I do believe photography can save us. You know, Leonard Freed, uh, who was a great Magnum photographer, mm -hmm was being interviewed once, and somebody asked him why he photographed, and he said to keep from going insane. And I thought, yeah, you know what, I bet that's why a lot of us do it, is that it helps us make sense of the world. And that's really important. Sure. Uh, so anyway, I just thought, but in Haiti, I have a lot of friends, and I can afford to hire some little Haitian ladies to <laughs> take care of me. <laughs> and maybe that's where I'm going to be the happiest because I love it, and I'm very happy when I'm there. So anyway, that's... that's that sounds like a magical but plan. But that's not in five years. So. No, that's a ways down the road. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to, uh, to talk with us. This is great. I wish I could do this a lot more often. I haven't seen you for a long time, so it was great to well, catch up. A few up. years, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your interest, and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to say a lot of things that I... I uh, Hope will be helpful or interesting to people. Absolutely. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.